Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the joy we have being in your kingdom. We'd ask that we would each week, each day, hold our lives up before you, learning what we can learn. In your son's name, amen. We're in Psalm 91 because we're not in Malachi 1. I tried to develop Malachi 1 into a, a sermon that wasn't mean, and I couldn't do it. So I said, well, let's not be mean. Mari's getting baptized today. Let's not dump the whole um, conviction of everything on and on. So I went looking at other passages. In Psalm 91, we did in Psalm 90 a couple weeks ago, and... Uh, I think my Bible was sort of open to that section, you know, how your Bible gets, it's, and sort of open to 91, so I was reading it. I haven't been in Psalm 91 in almost 10 years, so I, I read it through. And it's a psalm of promises, of good that the Lord has for his people. It starts out with, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, so the dweller and the abider in these places, will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That makes perfectly good sense, that if you dwell in the fortress... If you dwell in the refuge, if you abide in him both, you can say, because I abide in the refuge and fortress of my God, I can, it's evident that my trust is in him. And then it has a slew of promises, very, very pleasant promises to hear, washing over your ear, you know, just like, for he will deliver you, verse 3, from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. The snare of the fowler I didn't strike me as too... I didn't see myself as a bird. But maybe you... Uh, you, you, you what do they call people who are into birds? AV? Ornithologists? Ornithologists. He will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. He's throwing metaphors against the wall pretty aggressively. All sorts of things that make you feel... uh, The guys here like the words pinions. Because you think of a bald eagle, because this is America. Bald eagle with his pinions protecting you, and shield, and whatever a buckler is. A buckler is a small shield. It's handy to know. Women, perhaps, like to avoid deadly pestilence. I think we all probably like to avoid deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, 
but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. This is is covering the refrigerator of your grandmother. They they love this. They they love the promises of just nothing bad is going to happen to you. Now, when I was growing up, and some of you older people can call this image right to mind, Grandma would have, any grandma, picker, a painting, a very bad painting, of two small children in a storm at night walking across a bridge. Of course, a rickety bridge. Everything that a mother lies awake at night fearing her children snuck out of the house to go do. But in this painting, invisible to the children, but very visible to the grandmother, an angel walking behind them with a slight smile of care on its face as it herded them across, you know, man, love those promises. Just love them. Say, well, is there anything wrong? I mean, the promises are there, Evan, for heaven's sake. Making fun of the artwork is, is beneath you. Other people, if it's not a, a clean promise scribbled out on paper and magneted to the fridge, you see men with black tees, graphic black teeth. And they're always with bad silkscreen jobs intentionally with kind of broken Harley wings on them and a shield and buckler, whatever that is, um, uh, with some, uh, with the passage, either the reference or a portion of the passage that says shield and buckler on it somewhere. We love these promises. We either love them as grandmas or we love them as young masculine men. We love to We love to have this. It says, it says, it doesn't matter. You're in the middle of a war. 10,000 people dying at your right hand. It doesn't even come near you. You're invulnerable. You can't be hurt. That's what it sounds like, right? It will not come near you. In some ways, um, we have to realize that something, in spite of the psalm, killed David. Something will kill you. This is the Lord's protection in a life that kills us. We have to handle this You say, "Uh uh-oh, Evan's going to try to get around these promises. The problem is not with the promise. It's what the promise does to us. We start to look at the promise, we stop looking at the refuge and the abiding and the dwelling in. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
He who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, so it is for the one because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation. This is for those people. We stop, we, we, we just sort of say, okay, I go to church, I get these promises. I, 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 I went to Christian camp, I get these promises. Christian moms all over the world, Christian grandmas all over the world making claims on Jesus because of whether their assumption about their kids claim to God. We should be thinking more about the category of people for whom these promises really are given. Is any pain is any pain and pain hurts, by the way. And nobody likes it. Poverty, nobody likes. Pain, nobody likes. It is natural that when somebody starts preaching wine and strong drink to this people, he'll be a prophet for this people. You prophesy wealth and health and benefit. Everyone's going to like that because everyone likes those things. So what is the nature of he who dwells, who abides, who has made the Lord their refuge? What is the nature of their life expectancy. Do they, are they immortal? Pick the one that was the most such. Jesus Christ. Was he immortal? No. It killed him. Badly. And he knew it was going to kill him. And he wanted otherwise. He had to believe when you take refuge in God, you are taking refuge in the rule. The fortress of God is not some sort of um, force field for what you think of as painful. The fortress of God is preserving everything that needs to be preserved. If you trust God, like Christ did, he can say, not my will, but thine be done. Because you believe that his fortress and the rules of his fortress, the rules of God's dwelling place that you have gone to dwell in. If you want to run your life according to your pains and pleasures, you are trying to take habitation in your fortress where you design the yes and the no and whose attacks get through. And you don't like pain, so that's just a basic out. If you could just say, I could design a life in which nothing would hurt. We've been praying for various people. Back pains, cancer, whatever else. Is it me? I hope that got picked up on the recording. What a church. When we... Uh, when we say we're taking refuge in God, we really got to be sure that we know what the rules of the fortress are. What the rules of this battle are. That when I trust in my Lord, I have to say, no matter what he asks me to do, and I, I've mentioned this essay before, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, On Obstinacy and Belief. Why do Christians believe against everything? Just they keep believing. They have the, the, the belief of acquaintance. 
They know what he's like. They know when mom says, I'm going to take the splinter out, it's going to hurt before it feels better. But suddenly it will feel better, but it's going to hurt while I'm digging for it. Every mom has done that. And the, the kid is just howling like a banshee because it seems like you're taking liberties with their well-being. And then suddenly, the little piece of wood is out of their finger and it actually ceases to hurt. And you let your mom do that because her world, because you've maybe had a few splinters before, you realize, no, no, I don't need to have you dig this one out. And you go a few days with a splinter slowly jabbing its way into your soul. Finally, you decide that Maybe mom's way is the right way. We take refuge in her, but she knows that the fortress has to be run this way. You gotta go to the doctor, you gotta take the antibiotics, you gotta get the tweezers and start rummaging about in your inward parts. If we take a place in God's fortress, we have to accept his rules for the fortress. What's he defending against? Christ did. He said, not my will, but thine be done. His will was die painfully. And Jesus did not want to die painfully. I was reading somebody's Facebook post the other day. Someone I don't keep in any kind of touch with. They somehow ended up a friend. It was a young mother. Somebody in their acquaintance had... I think died tragically, a child. And she had a long post about the doubts she had about God. I think a lot of people come to promises as if it was a promise given broadly everyone, that's just how God designed the world to have good things happen. And so when bad things happen, they can't believe in that God anymore. That's that standard theodicy question of how could God let awful things happen to people. Just a tip. The answer is, because you're just awful. Not because they are, but because you are. You have caused all of the pain in the world. Just leave them with that. Not right now. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, you have picked a Lord of that castle, of that refuge. The Most High is your habitation. Not you are your habitation, and the Most High is the force field for you, the most high is your habitation. Now, it sounds initially, and I, and I admit this, as I was going through the passage of saying, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm taking all these dear promises of security and provision against harm, which David is writing in a probably very literal way. 
He stood in battle and watched men die on his left and his right and his life be preserved. But I'm not drawing images out of a hat. And I don't want to, by cre and I don't know if you actually picture the actual painting I'm talking of. Maybe you have seen it. You've all seen the Jesus at the door knocking with the Behold, I stand at the door and knock that painting. You, you can't, Christians, come on. Did you go to Sunday school anywhere? Making fun of the artwork. I, I, uh, at my dad's house, there are books from different centuries. The 19th, 18th, 20th century, primarily. And Christians didn't know how to write titles of books in the 20th century. They're just awful. But there's some pretty good edification in some of those awfully titled books. So don't take my subjective mocking of the kids on the bridge and the angel visible only to grandma and God protecting them as a reason to discard this. It's not the art quality. That's just bad art. What if someone did a nice... A nice thing, because right there in verse 11, for he will give his angels charge of you to guard in all your ways. Okay? There's verse 11, right there, staring at you, Evan. You tried to dodge it, but it just carried you right down through all these promises, and then just like the painting that you made fun of, the angels are given charge of you. And, and I ask, because I'm nervous about this kind of broad promises, kind of a little too ramshackly used as a superstitious amulet to make a claim because you put it on your refrigerator that nothing's going to happen to your kids or you. So I wonder if it could be badly used and, and, and you know, that, that somehow there's a, there's a dark element here. And, and the person might say, but no, I, I, I've got, not only, I don't have that painting because I'm not my grandmother. I do have a nice calligraphy of this. The problem is, that's the passage of scripture Satan quotes in the temptation of Christ. For he will give his angels charge of you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So I would think, yes, it can be badly used. He promises Christ, Luke 4, look here on the side, for left-hand side. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Our worry is not that good things would happen to us. God bless you. We live in an American affluence and God has been kind to us as a nation. He's been kind to us as a region. He's been kind to us as individuals in a small town. You live a good life. And it's not that God is just the ultimate buzzkill. And of course, if you want to be led by God, he's going to take you to Tulsa. Nothing could be worse. 
We're not that kind. We believe in the positive. Where is the negative in this? Well, Satan brings it up. We sometimes use the promises of God in that amulet, using it as an amulet, as a, something that wards off the, my, my sister in her time in Turkey and the Far East. Um, an awful lot is done to ward off the evil eye. Awful lot. And I guess any blue stone ain't good. And my sister's favorite stone, and she never wore any jewelry, was turquoise. So she's traipsing around turkey, blue stones on her wristband and so forth. People flip it out. People are very concerned. We love having something that we can claim as the magic of Christianity, just like they claim it in Islam. But here the worry is, not that God isn't good, but that anyone would manipulate or claim something for their life on the basis of it. That they would look at the promise, the promise is true, but our heart is to look at where, where do I stand regarding the promise? Do I really have the wisdom of the promise? Because the person who is just trying to avoid pain and get pleasure is just doing what everybody else in the world is trying to do with themselves. Reward themselves at their self-standard of enjoyment. And we're told that if we do not take up our cross, we're not worthy of him. If we don't renounce everything we have, we're not worthy of him. If we have not given up everything that we got, we are not worthy. The problem is, when Satan steps in, the psalmist writes something that is true, but it's not true for the agent to be testing his God by it. The person who finds the doubt springing up. Oh my gosh, my kid's got panomia. How can there be a God? You put a God to the test by your... You say, this is what he said. This is what I expect. This is what you better do. And Jesus is saying, I know I'm hungry. I know I'm God. It's not just regular Christian. He's son of God throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. If the angels would protect anybody, they would protect Jesus. And they said that at his cross. This is the beginning of his ministry. At the end of his ministry, they're mocking and saying, well, why don't you call some angels? Deliver yourself. We've got to make sure that we, if you start kicking against, you might say, what the rules of the fortress are, means that you didn't join the fortress. You went and said, I want God to add to my fortress of me and my pleasure, me and my pain. And so when he fails to give me that, my doubts run amok. So you want to be sure 
that like Christ, when you step closer to God, you accept the will of God. You will tread, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Listen to this. This is the passage that because he cleaves to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That is the At the beginning, he said, if you dwell with me, if you abide... If you've made the Lord halfway through your refuge. And then he describes more fully what the kind of relationship is. There's a very cavalier, expectant, benefited circumstance. You know how idolatry is described in a couple of letters of Paul. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. People use their religions to get things to wave the, the magic chicken or the rabbit's foot or whatever kind of thing. You see people with the rosaries going... Somebody who used to live in our house back in the 1960s is in town because their mother died here locally, Roman Catholic, Tolutki is the name. And Leslie was reading the obituary and, uh, and talked about the rosary being read at St. Mary's. You gotta have it done, man. You gotta get through the beads. You gotta read through the rosary. You gotta make the God jump through the hoops. But our God is not that kind of God. Our God is one in whom we take refuge that we cleave to. The idea was more. Um, not that the opposite isn't true. You know, God comes and lives with us as well. It's always like, well, my, my father and I will take up our dwelling with him, he and us, us and him. It's a, it's a reciprocal arrangement. But I think sometimes when we struggle with things that go wrong, painfully or otherwise, losses that occur, we're supposed to be checking whether or not we have marched into his fortress and accepted his rule, his command. I have a friend who writes, oh, I think it's uh, George Verwer. Has he signed off his letters in his grip? It's, it's not as bad as the pain of the... And I think it's good. You are in his grip. God is holding on to you. But in this passage, because he cleaves to me in love, what's your grip on God? Is it a grip on him? What do you believe him to be? How much are you holding on to him? We know the grace of God and we cannot save ourselves but it is a measure of how much you care for the living God about how much you grip him. If you are, you know, something bad happens and your faith is, a, is a, so ephemeral that it goes up in a puff of smoke, you weren't holding on to him. He was always just there as a vending machine. 
for you to check in with your little abracadabra, get what you want, and if he doesn't, you're not going to believe in him no more. You're not gripping him. Because you're looking to find out who dwells, who abides, who has found refuge. It's these people. They cleave to him in love. He will, I will deliver him. And he says, I will protect him because he knows my name. Do you know his name? Jesus. Yeah, every kid knows that's the answer to any Bible question. The answer is Jesus. Who is your God? Listen to yourself. Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it Yahweh? Do you know what you're naming? Is it just a religious name that you heard growing up? You heard about Jesus Christ, and so you know when you hear somebody say Jesus Christ, and it doesn't sound like it's religious, they're swearing. Uh, what's your connection to his name? He wants to be known by you. Identified by you. The person who knows his name, whatever you found that out to be, he will protect. The closer you have cleaved, cloven, clevved, I don't know what the right word is, the closer you have held him to yourself, the more you have pursued his identity, that Acquaintance makes you comfortable with walking into a situation that you have given to him and said, your will, Lord, because I know who you are. And because I know you're good, even when I hurt. Christ knew his father was good, even though he was about to hurt an awful lot. Because you know his name. And we call on him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. Think of yourself. Do you hold to God? Do you know who he is? And do you petition him? Because none of this, it's not wrong to ask God for things. It's not wrong to be blessed by him. It's not wrong to have good health and to pray for good health. Success. But where is it running? Is this the voice of the fortress called self? And God is a performing monkey. He's supposed to give things out to you. And he promised, so you better give them, or I'm not going to believe in them anymore. Or have you come up to the gate of his fortress and said, Lord, let me in. Yes, I will. I will live by your will. But I know you're a good God. You reward those who seek you. I have a few things, a little less of it is grip, a little more that he is in yours. It's not, again, it's not wrong to think the first thing, but you're looking at ordinance measures in your mind. Do you hold on to him, or is always him holding on to you? A little less of the personal savior where you are the person and not where he is the person. You're, yes, you're a person. He saved you and is your personal savior. But he is a personal God. And knowing his name matters. 
and claiming the promises. You hear a lot about, you know, claim the promises. You read the promises and say, Lord, I claim this promise that 10,000 will die at my right hand. Okay, all right. Oh, I won't get harmed in the fight, no matter what. My son's going off to Iraq. I'm claiming this one. A little more calling on him, a little less, you know, waving the magic phrase. You don't want to think that the good is not there, but you don't want to think the good is there for such kind of pretension, or presumption, probably more. Superstition, collecting out of God, just like the idolaters, we covet things. We covet things. We were talking on the front porch the other night. Somebody raised the question, I forget who. I think it was Black Kenny, about um, what superpower would you have? I think you'd just seen a movie. I, I either wanted to be, uh, be able to command futility to stop in my yard or speed up futility for everybody else. That was my power. We, uh, we could imagine, if you played the game, what if you won the lottery? Well, I, I, I would certainly give a lot to your church. Thank you. Why don't you just have me win the lottery? And they don't pray for that. They want to get to win the lottery and then choose to give it to the ministry. We have things of power, just, and, and, and passages that dangle all this wealth of good in front of us. Not, not eternal life, but long life, right? With long life, last verse, I will satisfy him. How do you go about it? Are you going to be superstitious and claiming the promises? Or are you going to be calling on him, finding out whether or not you have clung to him, whether you have known him, whether you seek him? We have a God who favors our comfort. And whatever he does, no matter how bad it is, it features our satisfaction and our salvation. He will satisfy him and show him his salvation. That's our God. And you can trust that the splitter will be out. If you start to measure your pain and measure your loss and measure your withoutness, and this is the be-all and end-all worst thing that can happen. My God didn't deliver me. I'm going to become a Hindu. Well, good riddance to bad rubbish. Let's thank God. Thank you, Lord, for being good to us promising your hand in our lives physically and successfully and the benefits that come with, with uh, certain behaviors religiously, we'd ask that you would have those be the right ones. Not presumption, not superstition, not flagrant claiming of things that we in no way have stood before you to seek your face. We'd ask that we would say to ourselves, we seek him. Do good to us, Lord. Do good to all the saints. 
we'd ask that we would be rejoicing knowing that whatever pain we pass through is always a path to a great satisfaction and salvation. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.